0: On the Dallas Opera Network, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh,
1: let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's Opera Box Score. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined on America's Talk radio show about opera by Oliver Camacho, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Ashley Hardgrave. All right, this week, By the time you get this episode, the men's NCAA champ will be crowned. Here on the OBS, we're working our way through the final four of the Opera Land bracket to pick one dark horse to become part of the standard rep. But first, by the time you get this episode, one of opera's most powerful gatekeepers will be managing a publicity crisis thanks to our pal Zach Finkelstein and another one of his highly researched investigative articles, from middle class artist, plus two minute drill. Opera Australia takes a page out of the Mets union negotiation playbook. Oliver Camacho, we got a big show.
2: It is a very big show, and it's a slow news week. But thank goodness for Zach Finkelstein. For more reasons than just that. He's he's an absolute hero. Yes, more reasons than just that.
1: (laughs) Matt Cummings singing his praises of Zach Finkelstein, Weston Williams singing the praises of Zach as well. Ashley, who are you praising?
3: I'm praising all sorts of people. Uh, Congrats to Baylor and Gonzaga, who are playing right now in the national championship. Uh, Congrats to Stanford on their women's championship. I believe it was yesterday. Uh, And... You know, better luck next time to your beloved Wolverines and my beloved Razorbacks.
1: I can't speak for Arkansas. Michigan had many a chance to win that,
3: that close loss that against too-
1: UCLA. They really had chances there. So.
3: That game was tough. I mean, this has been a, a tournament of upsets in in all of the ways. Uh Arkansas, I don't know if we would say they crashed out. I think they were as, they were more surprised than anybody else that they were in the Elite 8. <laughs> Um, but they, but it was kind of great though. It's like they came in seated dead last, uh, in, in that eight teams, they knew this was going to be one of the last games with their star players who is going to be a top 10 draft pick. They really, you know, pardon the pun, had nothing to lose. So they were able to just go out there and go wild and play hard. Uh, and they kept Baylor, which is easily well clearly now one of the top two teams in the country they kept it a 10-point game or less for most of the game so- surely our Dallas
1: listeners are cheering for Baylor at this point as well our own <laughs> operaland um, bracket in 20 minutes but first let's talk some opera chalk talk
2: on opera box score earlier today middle class artists published a detailed investigation into fat shaming and bullying of young singers in the opera industry including nine artist testimonials outlining the behavior of one of opera's most powerful gatekeepers, Diane Zola, Assistant General Manager Artistic of the Metropolitan Opera. To be clear, Diane Zola is also the Director of Artistic Administration at Houston Grand Opera and the Executive Director of the Linneman Young Artist Development Program and a master class teacher at apprenticeship programs and universities all over i don't even know she still has her job at rice university but she is everywhere Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh we are recording on monday april 5th let's see how many of her titles she will hold by the time this episode Drops.
1: Zach Singelstein has a knack of doing these incredibly well-researched articles, which have far-reaching effects on the industry. Again, link to it on our website, operaboxscore.com. Matt Cummings, I want to start with you. Your point was that this problem is not actually unique to opera.
0: No, and I I think in some ways it. I mean, I hope that I'm proved wrong by this, but like, I would be surprised if there is significant professional blowback, like, right now. I just don't think this issue is at a critical mass of awareness of um, import in society. But the the problem of um, anti-fat bias is huge, and it's everywhere. Mm-hmm. And those in the performing arts suffer for it, like, probably the most visibly and the most obviously, because it's there are the clearest lines that can be drawn there. But I really think if you were to hand this article to any plus-size person, regardless of what industry they worked in, like large swaths of it would still be very applicable and would remain unchanged in their experience.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Weston, this is, of course, the type of work we've come to expect from Zach Finkelstein and middleclassartist.com. But he really sort of starts on a very uh, broad scale to, to sort of talk about the problem in the industry as a whole. And then gets more and more specific.
4: Yeah, it's um, it, it's this is one of those things where uh, we've seen a lot of uh, uh, sort of these uh, takedowns, for want of a better word, uh, coming from middleclassartist.com, um, and uh, obviously this one focuses on one specific person, Diane Zola. But it, th- what what I really like about this article in particular, and I hope that it will be reflected in future articles is how it highlights the truly systematic nature of the problem. Um, There's a diagram in like the last third or so, uh, which literally like lays it out for you. Um, It makes the point that uh, basically at every stage in the process, basically uh, encourages and shames people for their bodies. Um, Basically, if you are a manager um, and you say, "Oh, I'm sorry, you can't get beyond this point because you, you're too heavy." You know, um, they're like, "Well, it's not my fault. That's the opera houses. They just don't hire people like that." And the opera houses will say, "Oh, it's not our fault. The audience, it, audiences expect thin white people on stage. They, ex, uh, uh, you know, the donors expect that, and of course, the audiences tend to just kind of accept whatever's on stage in front of them." Um, and uh donors uh, you know old rich white people they just kind of you know want the big names the big sort of uh uh um most attractive often literally uh sort of singers on the stage the mo- the ones that'll look best in uh and most uh in most uh uh I don't know, Big because of the campaigns. most status, <laughs> you know, like that. <laughs> and it really reflects the whole cultural notion of being skinny is better or, or someone who is a little heavier or or, or fat is just not, not, is a lesser person. Um, and then, of course, that, of course, is reinforced by academia and people like Diane Zola, where you have a young artist who's trying to break into the industry and they just say, I'm sorry, no one's going to hire you if you are, uh, you know. If you well, she has not... the power to actually to hire exactly. people. Exactly. So yes, she's, exactly.
2: She's like saying, "Oh, this doesn't happen in our industry. It's because you're making it not happen." Exactly. And
4: but this is yeah, she, think,
3: she this... fulfills the prophecy. But
4: exactly. for, for those this of you is, who, this is not just like uh, they're not reacting. They're not just. Uh, it's not individual bad actors. They are creating this cycle of body shaming as they cl- as they pass it on down around and around, and that gives people like Dan Zola the ammunition to really focus it into one person to just literally destroy careers so
2: just i know that ashley has a lot to say but i just wanted to say for those of you who don't read the article (laughs) to be very clear here there are testimonials from people who have gone through young artist programs who have been in master classes people who are professionals Mm -hmm. who have said who say in this article diane zola told me i need to lose weight Diane Zola said nobody wants to see my fat arms so I should wear a dress that hides them. Diane Zola told me I need to wear more supportive garments. Diane Zola policed my eating. Things like that that are like really in your like in your head type of stuff yeah. like to put fear in you that you will not have a career unless you do what Diane Zola says. That's the stuff that's in this article. Yeah.
0: And and she's far from the only person in the industry who acts like that, but she's extremely oh, prominent and she's and she is the, the subject of this article. But and, when you have someone at that level who acts like that all the time, it not only perpetuates it, as Weston says, but it gives everyone else at every other level cover because it's just the way it is. It becomes and, conventional and, wisdom. And
2: since a lot of these competitions have gone online, the Met has provided support for artists through um, their HR, so that if you are being harassed, you think you're being harassed or discriminated against, you can, you can report to Met HR, and this is that has been in place for I don't know how long, but singers have complained to HR that this is happening to them, and we see Diane Zola specifically changing the way she says things, but still saying the same things, maybe gesturing, (laughs) you know, using sign language or or gestures, but not actually saying explicitly what she's been saying all along. So the behavior
1: hasn't changed. Ashley, this article has inspired you to write your own opera in your head.
3: Yes. Yes. And the name of that opera is called, you don't deserve love unless you are below a size eight. Because, (laughs) because that's basically what I was told for all of my school in, in this amazing art form. Um, I, yeah, that's the thing is that the, so much of the focus of this article, first, I'm tired. I'm so tired. One of the things that made this article today so big wasn't the revelation of any new material. It was the fact that it was being spoken about publicly for the first time. And if anybody out there is clutching their pearls, where the hell have you been? <laughs> um, I digress. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm tired because so many of us have dealt with this for so long. This is an integral part of virtually every female identifying singer's career. Um, I can't believe I'm saying this, but, you know, there, there is some focus on the fact that, like, Diane is at the Met. Saying about the Met, we don't need to focus there. This is a contagion from the bottom to the top. Of the training vehicle, from freshman voice majors in their performance classes to grad school auditions to these soul-debasing to sing programs to the yaps to all of the letter houses A through Q, however many there are, um, it's easy to blame the Met because look, at them. Uh, it's, it's, it's
4: easy is, to blame the Met for <laughs> everything,
3: <laughs> and, and they have—they've—they've they've been our whipping—I don't want to gender it—our whipping person for a long time, um, but. I'm not kidding you. Walk outside, you swing a dead cat, you're going to hit a female music student who at one point in her life had a dress size above size 8 and she was told that she would never work again because mm-hmm. of that dress size. Guaranteed damn to it. It's happened to me.
1: This got this got times. real for you, Ashley, in grad school for you.
3: It it sure did. Um <laughs> a woman in my audition who eventually became one of my voice teachers. Uh I sang for them in March. I came in in August as a as a graduate student at a at a conservatory with a, a at the time decent reputation. Um, I walked in for my first lesson with her and I was nervous and I was scared and I was excited. I happened to have tried to get healthy over the summer and lost about 30 pounds from the time she saw me last to when I walked in for my first lesson. And she looked at me, looked me up and down. And the first thing she said to me was, I see you lost some weight over the summer. That was a wise choice. And then she rolled her eyes and she walked to the piano. That's how I started my graduate conservatory career. Um, I was told almost daily that my voice didn't fit my body, but then I was immediately told how beautiful and how gorgeous and how castable and how hireable my voice was. So what exactly does that do? (laughs) What is, what does that do to you? What is, what do you, how do you feel? When you hear that, are you supposed to say thank you when people consistently tell you how incredible your instrument is, but how the rest of your thing that supports your instrument doesn't, doesn't fit it? Um, you know, I kept being told that like almost everything was in place. You're so close. You're almost ready for your career to take off. Almost everything is in place. That was a phrase I heard a lot. Almost everything is in place. What I didn't realize that was out of place was my actual like meat case, my meat suit. And it was not in the shape that they thought would be castable. So it was my responsibility to pick up on the clues and shape shift at the cost of whatever I had, including my health uh, so that I could become this marketable successful tool. Um, I, I started to hate my body and in turn I started to hate myself. I saw colleagues and classmates go through very, very unhealthy, uh, procedures and, and mechanisms to, to reduce and shapeshift their own casings. And then I saw them praised by our mentors and our teachers, because all of the sudden, magically, you were a better musician because you had lost 10 pounds of water weight, uh, because you had found the Dex- Dexatrim at the Walgreens or whatever. Um, I spent almost all of my second year of graduate school hungry, like legitimately hungry. I was the thinnest I have ever been, i was told that i could vocally do a role at santa fe but i was not physically believable in the part um so yes george this is very personable for
1: me (laughs) so here here we are on a monday night the national championship is in the background it's been a weird day for you what's in your head
3: it's thank you for asking um it's been really hard um i i told i told my my gentlemen my my lovely supportive buddies on this call that it's it's been weird and i was in a weird headspace i didn't expect to be I saw this article coming out and I was ready to come in guns hot and taking everybody down and being real sassy and cracking jokes, which I will inevitably do because humor is my defense mechanism. But I'm, I'm a little down. I'm a little down. I'm feeling a lot of feelings that I haven't felt in 15 years, 20 years. Um, I'm, I'm checking myself in weird ways. I, I was getting ready to make lunch for myself today. I immediately rethought my lunch. I was like, are you sure you want to eat that? Are you sure? Are you sure you want to eat that? That's, it's not really healthy. Are you sure you want to eat that? Because 22 year old me remembered that she was supposed to watch what she ate. Um, I'm getting emotional and it's because that's how real this is. I was within, texting with a f- go ahead.
2: No, I just want you to be able to like gather <laughs> <laughs> with, you know, within a few hours of this thing being initially posted on middle-class artist. Uh, it was shared very widely. And um, a lot of people who shared it are people who are no longer singing. Yeah. And I've, I've I've seen posts from people who I knew when they were singers who I respected as singers say, this is why I left opera.
3: Yeah. No, I I feel similarly. I did not leave opera entirely, but I, I definitely found choices and opportunities elsewhere because I found communities that were slightly more welcoming and, and I felt you know, to really boil it down, it felt safer. Um, you know, reading this article was hard. I have been in this weird space today. I started texting with a friend of mine who is a singer. And it, it, for my money, she's one of the best in the game. Like, she's castable right now at B and A houses. She's got a huge, gorgeous instrument. It is insane. Um, I was talking with her about this article. She had posted it and, and had mentioned some of her experiences. Um, a patron came up to her once and touched her stomach and asked if she was wearing a fat suit. Um, yeah a director told her once that her fat arms distracted from her very pretty face. Um, just, just little things like that. And I've worked really hard to get past, you know, sort of living in that space of, of that self hatred and that desire to shape shift to gain the approval of, of others. Again, we go back to that balance of power that we've spoken about in all of these other different types of abuse, uh, conversations that have been happening in this art form. It's, but I got to tell you, it's, it's hard to love an industry that doesn't always love you back. Um, when you spend so much time and money, uh, trying to, trying to give yourself, give of yourself the very best to it. Um, but then I found communities, like I mentioned, you know, in art song and in sketch and in, you know, off kilter musical collaborations. Nobody's asking me how much bread I had that day. Nobody asked me how many pasta dinners I had. There are so many good singers, um, who are simply like Oliver said, leaving the game because they're just no longer willing to, subject themselves to, to that sort of abuse. Um, Ashley reading
1: this article, what's, what's your wish? What do you, what's your like your final take moving forward that you want to share? Can she have a moment
2: to, to think about that? And Matt or Wes, or anything else you want <laughs> yeah, to... Yeah,
0: but, I, and I want to... I can uh, also
3: just open mouth cry if you want that. I feel like that's good video, right? That's good television. But that, I mean, go it, on.
0: it's definitely there where you're, we're talking about drama. But, you know, we're talking about all these examples about how... And and those are the kind of, like, jaw-dropping, how-could-you-say-that-to-someone kind of examples that do happen. They absolutely happen, but they are not, yeah. like, the majority. They're not, but they're also not the majority of how these kinds of comments are encountered in the wild. Because they're, they're, like Oliver alluded to earlier, like a lot of these conversations that people have gotten wise, that you can't just openly say things like that anymore. So now they'll try to couch it in this really pernicious health concern trolling
3: where they're just worried
0: about you. And they want to make sure that you're aware of it. And I don't know what world these people think that they're living in where um, plus-size people are not aware that they are not (laughs) The norm. It is constantly brought to your attention that people Mm -hmm. see you as, you, us, as weak, as lazy, as unhealthy, as inadequate. Like, you can't keep it out of your attention. And it isn't about health at all. It's about appearance. And those things overlap sometimes, but not always. And they're totally different. And you're not talking about health. You're talking about what I look like, what people look like. And not only... Does that disguise, you know, what you're actually saying so that you can come away with a really bad taste in your mouth and really have to decode exactly what it was that put that taste there. But it also gives plausible deniability to the person saying it. And because it sets up this kind of shibboleth where if you know the code, you know exactly what they're saying to you about why you're not good enough. And if you don't know the code, then it's a dog whistle.
4: Yeah. And it, it's it's one of those things that you, being uh, fat, skinny, anywhere in between has nothing to do with your health. Uh, for the vast majority of people, and it doesn't have anything to do with the quality of your voice. Certainly, um, I just remember reading this. Um, uh, a friend of mine uh, who uh, who we were in school together, and we we you know there was a summer in between and uh, they came back and um, everyone was so complimentary about how they had slimmed down uh, and were looking so good. Um, They had developed, they had developed an eating disorder Mm -hmm. um, over that summer and they had to spend uh, the following that semester, they spent an entire year, um, you know, going to uh, therapy, uh, getting treatment for it because they had gotten so unhealthy they couldn't function. And this is, this is the kind of language, even the subtle sort of, you know, not saying the word fat or whatever. This is the kind of thing that creeps into people's brains, even outside of our industry that can and does destroy lives, you know? And it just, um, I, I certainly hope that, um, that the subject of this article, uh, Diane Zola sees some consequences. Yeah. And I so hope I that mean, going, yeah.
2: To answer your question, that. George, and then I'll pass it back to Ashley. What I want to see is a sincere apology and a public disgracing of Diana's Diane Zola. <laughs> I wanted to come out and say, when I was 10 years old, my daddy told me that I was fat and it, Affected me and now I'm the one who's calling people fat. I want something like on that level where she realizes what she's been doing to all these people over the course of her career. And I want all of these organizations that, you know, that hold her up as the gatekeeper. I want all of them to distance themselves from her. Whatever that means. Move her away. Let's move on to the next chapter of opera. It's it's done. She's done.
3: I am also want to want to pull the loans back a little more macro uh, and, and make one final point before I give you my wish on this on this topic is that uh, there are generations of women who have gone through this industry and they have experienced this and some of them have survived and they've had great careers uh, and then those people have gone on to train the next generation and they taught as they were taught and did this as a rite of passage. It's, you know, when, when you are taught something, you assume that it is okay. And it is just passed and passed and passed and passed. I I don't think many of these people are inherently monsters. Some of them are. Uh, But (laughs) I I think there is just a muscle memory of like, I had to go through it. So this is petty revenge, Mm, or mm -hmm. I legitimately think I'm doing what's best for you and trying to let you know what I think you need to have a career, because this is what I was told I needed to have to have a career. So what do I want? from all of this, um, besides those years of my life back, my God, what I would tell that young Ashley, but what I really want is a cycle break. I want us to have this conversation. I want it to spur the change and the shame, uh, needed to really break the cycle, to really affect change. And I want us to all be honest with ourselves about the part that we've played. This isn't about some monster at the Met named Diane who is in charge of making all of us feel bad about ourselves. This is systemic. This is top to bottom. This is generational. And we all need to own up to our part in that system.
1: Let's not say that this pandemic has no gifts. There are, for some people, occasional gifts. And one of those in our business is the chance to take the wash rag to the window and start to clean up this business and the various nasty corners that it has. And I hope that this is one of those moments when we can start to make some systemic change in this of many different areas. Articles on our website operaboxscore.com let us know what you're thinking operaboxscore at gmail.com
0: opera class sports radio
4: crass
2: this is opera box score you're listening to opera box score and we are here to say that um, you know there's that that saying that the people who are heavy are like the last group of people who it's okay to like marginalize and discriminate against it's a time for an end for that, and really, the last group that should be discriminated against are people who are freakishly tall. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, uh, I'll, uh, I'm going to do a whole segment just
4: about the, the problems I've faced, Oliver. Do you know how hard it is to find shoes in my size? Oh, it's ridiculous.
1: I, I empathize Funny. with you, but I've certainly never felt that way. <laughs> You're not going to get any pity you from know that know my side of know my experience, the... George. Probably not. I can't believe my son is on the verge of winning his fifth grade pool. For March (laughs)
3: Madness. You
1: must be so proud. (laughs) Major League Baseball uh, opening day was uh, Sunday, I think it was. No first pitch by President Biden, um, but stuff happening in baseball land already, Ashley.
3: Oh, Lord. Things are happening in baseball land. Um, Big moves. Yes, making moves. Props to Major League Baseball. I can't believe I'm saying that. Um, They (laughs) pulled their All Star game in July out of Atlanta as a direct result of the oppressive Georgia voting legislation that just came through. Um, that's awesome. I am Mm -hmm. waiting for the rest of corporate America to fall in line. Um, Georgia's sad because they just lost a hundred million dollars in revenue, but the thousands of disenfranchised voters, apparently they didn't have any feelings about that. This is hilarious to me. This just happened today. Texas Governor Greg Abbott refused to do the first pitch at the Texas Rangers game in protest of Major League Baseball moving the All-Star game out of a state that he doesn't govern. That's very <laughs> effective protest, sir. Good job.
4: <laughs> there's the little pretzel of, of ideology there.
3: I, yeah. And there's, yeah, a former Arkansas governor, Mike Huckabee, also had some, like, monstrous tweet that came out. But, like, he is not worth my breath or anybody else's, so I'm not even going to bring it up again.
1: Bring in the Ashley, bring in the heat in Texas here. Uh, final four for Opera Land. Four titles left, one from each of our panelists. Oliver Camacho with Balon's "Anonymous Lover," Matt Cummings handles Semele, Weston Williams, Peter Maxwell Davies' "Resurrection," and Ashley Hardgrave with a new version of "Song Drian." Uh, Oliver, tell us how your "Anonymous Lover" got here in the classical <laughs> division. Well, I
2: think it's like. If you, if you follow tennis like I do, sometimes there is a player who is just running hot and maybe they made it through the qualifiers and the coaches don't know who they are and can't study their tapes because there's no footage of them. And they sneak through and maybe they're feeling really good and they beat like a Novak Djokovic or they beat like a Serena Williams like in the Quarters or in the semis, you're like, how did that happen? You know, and it's because they just are having a moment, and maybe uh, you know, they're not going to be able to back it up in the future, uh, and maybe this on this day they just had the right stuff, and Rafael Nadal had a little twinge in his <laughs> ankle. You know, that's what I feel has going on right now with Joseph Boulon, but not to take anything away from him. Uh, we don't know about him. And it's not because he's not a good composer. It's because his history was erased when Napoleon mm-hmm. decided that uh, racism should be, you know, state mandated. So uh, we this lost This
4: is a Napoleon and Dianzola takedown episode.
3: so. <laughs> yes. I mean, if there's anything any more on brand for us, yeah. give us a call because it's really pretty awesome. So-
2: uh, managed to sneak through, uh, in my round against, uh, who was my, uh, Donna DeLago. Oh, uh, Donna de Lago. Well, mainly because Donna Lago is not a classical era opera. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> DQ'd on a technicality.
3: Oh, 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 yeah. that one burn. Uh, oh.
2: But I, I forget what other operas were in that, in that corner. Oh, midday. and then midday. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's a star vehicle, um, and we I don't know you if we can say that all you want it doesn't make it true but yeah. the judge was persuaded by your arguments <laughs> I don't know if we have a star right now maybe Sandra Rodmanovsky if she was interested in it but we haven't heard her sing it yet but who's singing the day right now you know? Antonat- Anna-Katerina Antonacci just did uh, it like a couple. also of years ago. also Matt Cummings in the shower yes,
3: yes. Oliver
1: I we're mean, gonna come back to you to make mm-hmm. your case uh you are matching up against Matt Cummings Semele so how did that make it to the final format
0: you're talking about Semele, You're asking uh, how did Semele make it as though it's some kind of a twist? We are talking about a top seed <laughs> that, you know, it's got quite a bit of brand recognition behind it. It's maybe not one of the strongest, most legendary teams that George Frederick Handel ever put together, but it definitely has quite a bit of his best work. So
1: go on and make make your case, and then I'm going to jump, ba- jump back to Oliver before we pick a winner. I mean, make- this
2: is the Gonzanga, or whatever you call them, of this whole... <laughs> Dark horses. I mean, this is the opera out of all of of all the operas that we talked about in this uh, tournament. Probably,
0: if you've heard of one, probably it's Semele. Go ahead, Uh, and not just because it has a funny name. So we're talking Semele. Let's rewind a little bit. This is the story of the princess. (laughs) Briefly, she doesn't want to marry the boring old guy that her father has picked for her because she fell in love with Jupiter. How many times has that happened to you, ladies? She is saved from the wedding by a flying eagle and ends up living in a celestial palace. <laughs> isn't stimulated enough? Wants some more excitement and accidentally gets tricked into asking her love Jupiter to reveal himself as a god, and uh,
1: then she bursts into flames.
4: Very typical. relatable. Very stuff. just you know typical
3: Thursday. Typical. <laughs> no.
1: Okay, but enough about you. What about the music?
0: <laughs> the music <laughs> of this opera dazzles it it, you know not only does it sparkle in the way that only Handel
1: can as I said enough about you
0: (laughs) (laughs) oh my god stop you're embarrassing me um but it does so in a way that that is still really immediate to modern audiences um I've said before in previous rounds the plot of this opera with mistaken identities and twist it somehow ends up even though it's a little bit ridiculous it doesn't feel contrived And since it was composed as this kind of opera oratorio highlight, the music does a lot more heavy lifting in terms of telling the story in a way that actually really resonates with today and movie music. Um, But without any of that boring realism that you might have to deal with. (laughs) That Um, garbage realism
4: that we all hate. (laughs)
0: So we'll just take for example, we'll take we'll we'll, we'll take an example of Semele's beguiling aria that closes the first act Endless Pleasure, Endless Love. Uh it starts off as a little ditty, but in the B section of this aria, it gets dirty. <laughs> With the way that the dissonance between the singer and the orchestra really drives home the sexy fun times that are going on at mm. this pleasure palace, and that is just you can still feel that today, 300 and change years later. I think my math is right. No. 200 and change years later <laughs> i think this opera works really well there are ways to interpret it that modern audiences can understand without sacrificing the spirit of the piece itself and there's something for everyone from sexy time romantic comedy to jupiter's aria that's like straight out of a screwball comedy as he's trying to improvise and come up with the best way to keep Emily happy right in the moment without giving up the goat you know that kind of stuff you can take home you can write a check
2: Dallas Opera viewers we'll put uh, a link to our playlist in the show notes uh, if you're listening to the podcast here is a little bit of endless pleasure for you <laughs>
4: A little bit of endless pleasure, yes. <laughs> not, not a, a lot, continuous endlessment. We don't. We, we, we don't can don't only have... give you
2: so much pleasure.
3: We we need an only in this for the podcast.
2: Come back to Opera okay. Box Score After Dark. <laughs> so here's me working the refs again. Um, that little lick, the ba ba da ba da ba da ba da ba is the same lick Handel used in uh, Julius Caesar uh Batachito. So here is Handel recycling himself, um, and <sighs> or
0: is he putting? common building blocks to work to tell a different story. <laughs> it's a Got variation him. on themes. He's for So it.
2: because uh, the history of Black composers uh, is has been erased, uh, and actually one might even point to handle as to why they're erased, but that's a topic for another conversation. Very true. Um, we don't have a complete recording of Lamont Anonymim. We do have, however, from the wonderful Paul Freeman... Uh, Exploration of Black Composers from the 70s, a scene from another Bologna opera, Ernestine, and we will hear a little bit of that, um, reminding you that Bologna is a contemporary of Mozart, and we don't think a lot of French opera in this time, in this kind of Rococo era. Uh, So it is an unusual genre, but I think that Bologna's music fits beautifully, and it sort of feels part of the whole French Baroque uh, era. Uh, but you definitely hear more of the structure, the, the numbers of the classical era. Um, this is a comedy ballet. So Handel, I think, was also inspired by the French Baroque operas. And we see a lot of, you know, dance music in some of the Handel operas like um, Fido*. I think there's even dance numbers in this opera. So this is a little bit more authentically French because Boulogne was a French composer. Let's listen to what Boulogne's music sounds like. Uh, this is a scene from his opera Ernestine. Uh, we will hear soprano uh, Faye Robinson with Paul Freeman conducting the, um, what orchestra is this, for the love of God?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, we may we
2: never know. <laughs> London
4: Radio Symphony host orchestra, Oliver
3: with Camacho. The, with the London
2: Symphony Orchestra. <laughs>
1: This is a really great. This is a really great matchup, and I'm I'm thrilled. This is that, actually super fun. Yeah, I'm thrilled that both these these teams, if you will, have made it so far and and so deep. Um, it is, it is difficult to know. I think how to assess anonymous lover, and that's not its fault. We've talked about how this opera has been erased. Oliver has spoken eloquently on that. It is hard to argue against the juggernaut that is. Semile, how well that story is known, how well that music is known. Uh, and so I'm going to put it into the final.
3: <gasps>
2: Whoa. What an upset? <laughs> yeah, I mean, real dark horse there. So, yeah.
3: <laughs> I got to tell you, though, Adonime had a good run. That was, a uh, That's yeah.
4: true. That's true. I think uh, in a few years, uh, uh, Anonymous Lover is going to become uh, maybe not a staple of like the mainstream repertoire, but I think it'll be played enough. So that maybe in five years when we do this again, George will eat his words and sob live on camera. And maybe we'll
2: have a recording of it.
3: There's a a storefront opera company right now trying to piece together a story. Ready,
4: waiting.
1: (laughs) Weston, keep going. Tell us super quickly how Resurrection amazingly made it to the final four.
4: Uh, Bribery is the first and foremost (laughs) one. Uh, and also the fact that it's 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 honestly is such an amazing hidden gem of an opera. Um, so just to uh, give you a little sort of uh, 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 overview, just to remind you, because I know we all know the plot of Resurrection like the back of our hands. Um, basically, the main For character a time is a, a silent protra- protagonist, um, and everyone basically is bugged by this um his his parents his priest his doctor um everyone is trying to get him to do something and it and it's all just a lot of noise for want of a better word and uh, eventually uh he is lobotomized it, it <laughs> is botched he dies and he's resurrected as the antichrist and that's just amazing and I'll give you, like, the full arguments in a second after uh, Ashley uh, <laughs> gives her a uh, her, uh, little overview here. You've
1: done so, the sort of, you know, radio equivalent of being, like, 20 points behind at the half, basically, <laughs> like, with how you just described that. Ashley, Sondrian, how did it make it to the final four?
3: Um. By sister's doing it for themselves. That's how it got here. We have a female composer who's coming through and crushing people left, right, and center. How are we even still talking about this? Why haven't we gotten on to the big dance?
1: (laughs) Carry on, then, and and make your case for why you think this should end up in the final, and dare say, as the uh, winner-take-all dark horse to enter the standard rep.
3: I'd love to, Stripes. All right, so, Fiardo Sondrom. This is... There's a lot of things that are very interesting about this. It, it's like a slapstick version of the story with like gorgeous French parlor music. I mean, it's just the coolest thing. Also, the storyline's a little bit lighter. Like, you can take your kids to this one. I don't know if you want them going to something like Resurrection. So, if you got an eight year old in your life, <laughs> there is a baby an awful West lot
4: thing. of phallic imagery in mine. I will admit that right now.
3: If you want to explain that to your kids, that's on you. But mine's going to be a little <laughs> bit easier to understand, and mine's way more like an episode of Three's Company. Uh, so basically, uh, we have this small cast of seven. We have a piano orchestration, so it's 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 small, it's condensed, it's very parlor-like. The premiere of this piece actually happened in Viardo's salon with her students when she was eighty-three years old. Um, mm-hmm. I like to think of them as kind of like the Loyola. They've they've really they've been great for a long time, and now that they've got this elderly woman at the helm. There's a little bit more notoriety, so you know <laughs> Viardo's their sister Jean. You know Viardo's the one that's like getting people to pay attention to them. So the plot of this Cinderella is way more lighthearted than the Massenet or the Rossini version. Think like like I said, you know slapstick, uh, three's company. There's some sort of a costume switch and, and misunderstanding. So the evil stepmother is replaced in this one with a bumbling and clueless stepfather, and then the fairy godmother La Faye. She, she comes in a lot. She's kind of like the Beyonce. She shows up, she's fabulous and she crushes it and she grants wishes. Um, so she actually shows up at one point as a guest at the, at the ball, at the party, and she entertains all of the guests with a song. And let me tell you, these arias from the fairy godmother, my god the virtuosity that is required of them. I cannot believe she was writing this for her students. It's amazing. Um, So Cinderella, or Cindy, as I like to call her, in this piece, she actually starts out as Marie. Um, She meets, again, interesting change in in the plot, she meets the prince before the ball. She's cleaning house like she does, as she's known for, and he poses as his servant, his valet, and he goes to give the invitation to Cinderella's family at their house. They meet, sparks fly, and... They both can't stop thinking about each other. Then we go forward to, we go forward. I'm having a stroke apparently. So we <laughs> go forward to the ball. The prince decides to switch roles with his valet again at the ball. So the servant is acting as the prince at this big public event. And then the prince is like slumming it with the servants down in the bottom. Uh, he actually, you know, it's very convenient because they haven't been able to stop thinking about each other. Cinderella, as we all know, she walks in. Everything stops. There's a record scratch, the music stops. Everybody can't believe how how absolutely stunning she is. But then she spots the servant, who is actually the prince, out of the corner of her eye, and she runs down to him, and then it's on. And they sing this cute little duet uh in secret that's called C'est moi ne rien," which is uh in English is called It's Me, don't worry. Uh so anyway, there's hubbub, there's hubbub, it's midnight, she takes off, and then the shoe happens. We all know this part. The bumbling dad, in the next scene, is like the prince that was there. Again, this is the public prince, so that's actually the servant. He was like, that guy looks really familiar, but I couldn't place him. And then he and his buddy start singing a song where they realize that that guy wasn't the prince. It was some other servant dude that they had been working with uh, at a long time ago as a green grocer. So that dude was pretending to be the prince... He was originally low class. The father's low class. Again, we've got this whole notion of class warfare that starts happening. So then we get back to the story that everybody kind of knows, uh, and and the way that things usually work out. Prince shows up. This time he's the real one. He's himself. He shows up as a prince. Does the whole slipper thing. This one's too big. This one's too little. This one's just right. Everybody sings. You know, we're all we're all happy. He automatically proposes marriage to her. The family starts to beg her forgiveness. She's like, jury's out. Don't really know. And then once again, fairy godmother Beyonce shows up to mic drop and Aria at the very end, more virtuosic than the one before, and upstage everybody. I love the plot of this one more than I love most Cinderella plots. You put on top of this lush, gorgeous French music from the late 1800s, early 1900s, sign me up. This is amazing. (laughs) Um, There are, and like like we mentioned before, we're going to be putting together some, some YouTube playlists for you guys, but... There's a couple of little recordings out there. Um, there's going to be a production in Milwaukee in a co- like 2022. I think we're going to road trip for that. It's going to be great. Um, there's a full production on YouTube from, I think, Madrid in 2014. Ohio State apparently did this in you know 2019. And in a weird turn of events that I learned from my homework, um, a former graduate student of mine did this as her doctoral thesis at Arizona State University. The title of her thesis was Pauline Giardot's Sandrillon and its relevancy for the developing opera singer. Isn't that cool? Uh, so for all of these reasons, it is a delightful, delightful piece that is going to be far more easy to entertain your kids with than He is Risen <laughs> 2.0. We already did that this week. Uh, there is a really great little sampler on YouTube. And I kid you not, this is called Hidden Treasures. Uh, and it's a mashup of some of the different highlights. And it gives you some of those sweet, sweet pieces of the, uh, the fairy godmother Beyonce arias uh, that I talked about before. Uh, and so I believe we're going to hear a little snippet, possibly a mashup of the initial cavity for the fairy godmother in act one and then a little bit of her aria in act two
1: I need to hear Weston make his case before I can right, uh, make a make a choice here. Weston Williams, keep it punchy. Resurrection. Why should it be in the final? Well,
4: Punchy is a good way to describe this opera in general, perhaps. Um, it's, it's interesting that you say, like, oh, the kids will love this music. You know what the kids are into nowadays, Ashley? Rock and roll. Uh, <laughs> the kids are rocking and rolling and doing the twist. And um, that's good because there's a lot of that in this opera. So now that Oliver's been knocked out of the competition, I could admit I cheated a little bit. Um, with this pick because it's not really a modern opera it's a postmodern opera in the truest sense of the word it is highly polystylistic which is a big hallmark of sort of postmodern composition um, uh, that began to gestate in the late 60s which is when this opera was first uh, began first begun to be worked on by uh, Peter Mac- Maxwell Davies um, even though it wasn't completed until 1987 um, which is wild to me because you know Peter Maxwell Davies, huge figure in the sort of, um, avant-garde world for basically his entire life. Um, he, he was working on this before even eight songs for a mad King, which we all know and love. Um, and, and, and he finished it like well into the eighties. And, and for me, that's just so cool because, uh, whenever i come across a an opera or a symphony or any work of art really that's been worked on for that long you see aspects of the compo- composer's entire oeuvre in one piece and that's why this opera is so exciting to me and why it's so criminally underdone um because it really is a gesamtkunstwerk he wrote his own libretto for this Uh, unlike any of his other operas um he really embraced the popular styles of his day in addition to the serialism he was raised he was sort of raised in music school to compose um he brought he brings in uh church music which he composed a lot of he brings in uh sort of folk music from the uh from that era there's a jazz organ in it which is my jam um and it's just it's it's a delightful delightful phallic antichrist uh,
1: opera um you definitely don't hear those words in combination a lot. <laughs> What's what's the clip for our our playlist or for the podcast?
4: Well, this um um there's only one recording that I know of that exists of this opera. It's the Naxos recording um, that sh- and uh, I have a we'll have a clip um, that we'll insert here of uh, just a good like little slice of it, which shows how he can slide so smoothly from atonality to revivalist, uh, Christian music, uh, right into rock and keep going all with a big satirical bite. Um, the big plot twist at the end is that this is all an advertisement, which is love that. Uh, the recording features, uh, Della Jones, Christopher Robinson, Martin Hill, Neil Jeakins, uh, Harry Hereford, Gerald Finley, who just showed up. I love that. Uh, Jonathan Best, Mary Crew, and Blaze, who I'm I'm not sure if Blaze is a band or a singer, but they're there.
0: Quarterized, sterilized hope he your son. His only hope And if he doesn't mend his ways, be assured we have the use of a psychiatric service and the backing of the police. When the mountain's black, and the moon
4: turns red, and the mountain's
2: moving, you try to leave your bed. When the stars fall down on the thunder-lightning head, with children started.
1: I've been impressed with Resurrection from the beginning of this bracket. I really have, and I'm impressed it's gotten this far. The road has run out on it for me, and I'm starting to, uh, to find it tiresome. So I'm putting Sondrian into the final. Ah! As I run on the board, <laughs> I want my panel, I want you to come up with- Should have brought
4: another $5 With, with me.
1: one sentence. Everybody's going to have one sentence. Ashley and Weston, your sentence is going to be smack about the other- Team. So about the other title, you're gonna give a smack. You mean, down you mean Ashley
4: and uh, 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 Ashley Matt.
1: and Matt. Ash, Ashley and Matt. Sorry. Yes. I said. <laughs> it's, it's, I can talk
4: smack about anyone. I'll do it.
1: No, Weston. Nice. Your and Oliver's uh, task is to is to make a one sentence argument for one of our two finalists, Semile mm. or for Sandriel. We're gonna mm. start. We're gonna go back to Semile. So Matt, your turn for a one sentence smackdown of sondrio
0: Sandrine's nice. It's cute. It's a really fun, um, it's a really fun curiosity, but if you're gonna shell out opera ticket prices, do you want a curiosity that took place in a salon, or do you want a spectacular with an eagle, a chorus, and more notes than you can possibly count in one evening? Ashley Hardgrave,
1: SmackDown on Semele.
3: You know, George, for far too long... (laughs) Women have been in the backseat of the opera writing world. This is our chance. This is our time to take an 83-year-old French woman and drive her right through that glass ceiling. And on this day, when this happens, <laughs> your grandchildren will ask, "Where were you? What did you do?" That was that was uh,
1: beautifully done. <laughs> Um, for all the politicians that you were channeling there. Uh, Weston Williams, give us your one-sentence uh, vote here. Semele, for a
2: dark horse, it's not dark enough.
1: Oliver Camacho, your one-sentence vote.
2: You know, it's 2021, and we're not going to be getting back to the Opera House with chorus and with a big cast and more notes than you can count. We, right now, we need something intimate. We need to feel safe while we're enjoying our opera, and we need it to be short, and a piano is just fine for 2021.
1: Again, we are picking here a dark horse opera that we think should join the standard repertoire.
4: I'm sweating bullets.
1: 15 productions of this opera between 2018 and 2022, with three productions on the horizon. It feels like it is this opera's moment. Do we really need another handle opera? I'm not sure that we do. Do we need a piece that has a piano orchestration and a cast of a cast of seven? Am I right? Count it seven. A cast of seven. For me, so tired of my chenarentelas and my and my uh, my massades. I'm putting <laughs> gonna... Saint into the the. There's f- too much chenarentela slander. What you should be absurd. disqualified just for that. What? <laughs> and... <laughs> Uh, Amazing! (laughs) You know the time.
0: The times have found us where we are today. I want to thank my family. I want (laughs) to thank.
3: My kids, I want to
1: thank. Uh, here we go. The, the uh, Oscar orchestra is uh, swelling up here. Um, <laughs> guys. No, you mean the single I... piano is, is swelling? Right. Yeah, no yeah, you, are, you,
0: you voted off your chance to have an orchestra to play the winner <laughs> off. So hope that the piano The can...
1: makes it as wins the uh, opera Land 2021 bracket as that opera that should be part of the standard rep. Let us know if we're right or we're wrong. Opera box score at gmail.com, Two-minute drill. Right now.
0: This just in,
4: the two-minute drill. All
1: right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week.
4: In an op-ed for Opera Wire, columnist Polina Lyapustina shed light on labor-related problems surrounding Opera Australia's reopening last month. After laying off most of its workers due to the the pandemic, the company refused to negotiate with the remaining union members. Quote, unlike the situation at the Met, which risks not opening without an agreement, Opera Australia has already opened and is now going to continue its victorious march across the continent stages and its workers' heads. That's a quote from the op-ed.
3: Crikey. Shout Studios will give home viewers a chance to watch The Sound of Identity, the groundbreaking feature documentary that profiles friend of the show Lucia Lucas and her historic performance at the Tulsa Opera. Through the telling of the story of Lucia today, in an era where trans visibility is unprecedented, we examine the strides that have been made, but also the long road ahead for this marginalized community," said director James Kicklighter.
0: Composer Susan Kander and soprano-slash-librettist Roberta Gumbel's opera DWB, or Driving While Black, will also have the film release, starring Gumbel and soprano Karen Slack. This story of a Black youngster growing up to be a teenager, about to get behind the wheel, brings up so many possibilities, each with the potential to end in tragedy, said Kander. The film will be released April 23rd.
1: This week's Yellow Cards!
2: USA! Atlanta Opera will return to live performances this spring in a socially distanced tent, kicking off its season with a deconstructed synthesis of Carmen and the Three Penny Opera, cut down to only 90 minutes, or the Two Penny
4: Opera.
0: This week's red cards.
4: France. President Emmanuel Macron has announced the country's third national lockdown since the beginning of the pandemic, which will last for four weeks.
1: Germany. A rough week for German opera companies as the Deutsche Oper Berlin and Hessisches Staatstheater Wiesbaden both extend their shutdowns until at least May. Berlin's Senate has made it illegal for the city's opera houses to open till April 18 at the earliest.
3: USA! The Dallas Opera has canceled the two song series performances due to a positive coronavirus test by a contractor associated with the production.
0: And on this day, April 5th, in 1705, it was the grand opening of the Queen's Theatre in London with their first Italian opera, Der d'ergasto, by Johann Jacob Graeber. In 1869, it was the birth of French composer Albert Roussel in Tourcoing. On this day, was the first performance of Die Fledermaus by Johann Strauss Jr. in 1874. Happy birthday to the American soprano and actress Mary Costa, born this day in Knoxville. Also born this day was Swiss soprano Eugenia Ratti in Geneva in 1933, English pianist Julius Drake in 1959, and finally we say happy birthday to Italian soprano Anna Caterina Antonacci, who was born this day in Ferrara in 1961.
1: And that's your two-minute drill. Yet I
2: know it's true That visions
0: are the they see What if I know you what you'll do, you'll love me
1: at once, the
2: way you did once
1: apart.
0: If you don't know the name Mary Costa, you probably do know her voice. She was the singing voice of Sleeping Beauty in the Disney movie. And I, for one, did not appreciate her immaculate technique when I was a small child.
1: (laughs) Correct. Correct. Ashley, you got a shout out.
3: Yes. Yay to friend of the show, Lucia Lucas. The more people that can learn about her amazing story, the better. I'm so proud of her. I'm so proud of her. Willingness to be at the forefront of these conversations. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting that it happened at Tulsa, given the things swirling around Tulsa last week. Progress is progress. We will take it. Hope to see more.
1: Weston Opera Australia. How much do you know?
4: Um, a uh, uh, more than I sh- I think I otherwise would. <laughs> it's it's difficult because the way Austri- uh, australian unions work is very different from a lot of parts of the world. Uh, us Australian unions are very weak. So even though, um, the Met is having a had a similar issue uh, with negotiations, the, the union was able to put on a lot more pressure, um, to try to get something done. And the Met does indeed risk something if they, you know, haven't reached, um, an agreement by the time that operas are, uh, uh, able to come back. However, in this case, we have kind of a parallel universe scenario where uh, imagine if the Mets had just been able to say, like, you know what? Who cares, mate? Uh, We're doing it live. (laughs) We're we're doing (laughs) it live. Uh, I I apologize to all of our Australian listeners for that. Um, But but yeah, basically, that's what happened. They cut a lot of their staff um, over the protests of the uh, of the union there, and and essentially they were like uh, the union was like well, we, we can't do this we're going to um, we're going to protest we're going to strike whatever and they just f- basically engaged in union busting and uh, uh, depending on which story you read um, they either fired all or most of the union members uh, and they're just proceeding on with their season as if nothing happened. And the, that's concerning, obviously, um, especially given uh, the state of all opera companies coming out of the pandemic. Um, uh, there's concern that this could serve as a model for other countries, other places uh, within Australia um, that could essentially just realize, oh, they can just walk over the unions and, and any semblance of job security benefits could be lost um so that's a story that i think is really important to watch even though australia is a very different situation from the united states it is something to keep in mind and uh as we move forward at the end of the pandemic
1: australia's unions are weak america let's wrap this show up
4: (laughs) good call bad call
2: on opera box score
1: good call bad call oliver camacho
2: this is insane. I'm so happy that this thing is happening. It's called the Early Music Singer's Toolbox, a series of online classes offered by Amherst Early Music Festival, my employer. Uh, there'll be a class on Purcell songs with Drew Minter, Ornamenting Handel with Christine Brandis, um, a lecture on Baroque staging by Ellen Hargis, uh, a lecture on recitative by a friend of the show, Gary Guido. Um, you have to check this out. If you have any interest in learning more about early music and what we nerds do to make music (laughs) sound more interesting from this era, you have to check it out. Amherstearlymusic.org.
1: Matt Cummings.
0: I mean, they probably would have gotten more people to register if Emily had won the bracket, but I digress. <laughs> uh, also, starting uh, starting this week on Friday, uh, the 9th, friend of the show Russell Thomas is going to be kicking off the LA Opera Signature Recital series with a concert that includes Dichterliebe, songs by Adolphus Hailstork and Robert Owens, and he will be joined by the pianist Kyung Mi Kim for that. Uh, you do have to pay for a ticket, but uh, one ticket gets you access to the entire catalog of recitals that they're going to be launching this year, which includes Jenny Bridges, Julia Bullock, Christine Gerke, and Susan Graham. So like that, there are worse things. Um, check it out. They will, yes. it launches the ninth and will be available for several weeks after the fact.
1: And yes, Weston Williams.
4: I have broken my good call silence to announce to the world <laughs> that Zach Finkelstein has a TikTok.
1: Ashley Hardgrave.
3: Uh, Mild, shameless plug uh april 11th this sunday uh fourth coast ensemble here in chicago is hosting the chicago version of song slam basically 10 teams of a singer a composer and a pianist create a brand new art song uh usually it's done in the form of a poetry slam and done live and then the audience votes this year because of covid they had to be pre-recorded but the live broadcast of all of them start to finish hosted by jake heggie friend of the show uh well hopeful friend of the show someday uh so jake heggie's gonna host song slam sunday april the 11th i encourage you to check it out not just because you might recognize one of the contestants um (laughs) but because it's going to be an amazing group of singers an amazing group of musicians going to be a heck of a night and jake heggie's hosting
2: to clarify jake heggie is a friend of the show that's our famous (laughs) lost episode
3: that's it that's it (laughs) yep yep
1: that's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. He's at normwaddell.com. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. On Twitter and Instagram, we're at Opera Box Score. Help us deepen our bench of listeners by liking and sharing our social media posts. Email us, your hot takes, gmail.com. Subscribe to the podcast on Stitcher. Just favorite the show on Apple Podcasts. The views and opinions expressed on Opera Box Score are solely those of the show's creative team. Any rebroadcast, reproduction, or other use of the accounts of this show without the express written consent of Opera Box Score is morally indefensible. But hey, life's a journey. Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho, our audio and video editors, Weston Williams, for your co hosts, Matt Cummings and Ashley Hardgrave. I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera as you dust off your baseball cap. We're back with an all-new show next week. Plus, you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, more tall shaming. Join us.